We are in Luke's gospel at the very beginning, and where Luke is outlining how it is that you know, Jesus came to be, what this looked like, how the story unfolded. And so if you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 39 and following, and we'll be kind of going through that. Um, but just to, just to catch us up here a little bit, Luke, Luke starts his, um, his story by talking about this, this priest, Zechariah, who has this vision from an angel saying that uh, him and his wife, who are old now and well beyond you know, childbearing years, will have a child, and he questions that. And so God says, well, because of your questioning, you're going to be mute and deaf, and so you're not going to be able to proclaim this news, but your wife will have a child. You'll name him John, and he will prepare the way for the Messiah, which is incredibly exciting. And then, and then the next story that, that um, Luke tells is of this angel visiting Mary, and saying, Mary, you, you will be the mother of the Messiah, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will have a baby boy and you will name him Jesus and he will be a, this king that the people of Israel have been praying for for forever. Also, you should know that your aunt is pregnant, Elizabeth. She's about six months along and leaves it at that. Now you have to imagine here a 12 or 13 or 14 year old girl hearing this message from God and be believing it because it's an angel but thinking, re 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 really? Like I, I, I know how babies come. And so you're telling me that now I'm pregnant. That seems rather miraculous. Now, I know that God is a God of miracles, so I'll believe it. But if, if I was Mary, I'd be like, wait, she said, or the angel said that my aunt, who I know should not be pregnant, is pregnant. So I'm going to take a trip. I'm going to go see if she is pregnant. So Mary is in Nazareth, and her aunt lives somewhere in Judah, and so what this looks like is like an 80-mile, four-day kind of a journey for a 13-year-old girl who has just heard from God that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will have a baby. So she has four long days to think about what does that mean? What in the world does it mean? What are the consequences that will come of this? Like, man, I'm, I'm facing a bit of a challenge here, aren't I? Like, it doesn't take long before you start to feel sick and you start to show. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, an angel came and God said that he impregnated me isn't going to quite fly. My parents are going to be questioning me. There's going to be snickers behind my back. 
What in the world could God be doing here? Four long days of contemplating how it is that God will use this and why God would choose her. On the other side of that journey is a, an older woman who never expected to be pregnant and now sits six months pregnant. For weeks now, if not months, she's, she's felt this baby move inside of her. And her husband, the priest, who can't speak or can't hear, but certainly over those six months would have in some way tried to write down and explain to her what exactly is happening and what it is that God said, stands in expectation of what God will do. Every kick, every flutter reminds her that this was not supposed to be, that this is an act of God and that this baby is special. Her son will usher in the Messiah. And when these two women meet, when Elizabeth hears the voice of Mary, she can feel the baby leap in her womb. Quite certainly something different than just the average kick and flutter. Something about the baby said, Mary is special. And the Holy Spirit comes upon Elizabeth and she blesses Mary saying, how is it that the mother of my Lord would come and visit me? Elizabeth uses the language that David uses in Psalm 110 to talk about the baby inside Mary and blesses Mary saying, you are blessed because of your belief. Before these women have a chance to exchange pleasantries, they both know that they are on a trajectory that only God could have provided. And in that confirmation, Mary explodes with joy and this song called the Magnificat. And she starts it by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. See, it's become unequivocally clear to Mary that what the angel has said will come to pass. That she is pregnant. And over the next three months of staying with her aunt, it will become more and more clear. The biological signs will become clear. The feelings of that baby moving will become clear. 
and her soul rejoices. And yet in that would come a lot of questions. Like, why, why me? What makes me so special? Like, I come from this nothing town, and I'm, I'm going to be married to this average carpenter. And, I, like, there, there's nothing special about me. There's, there, there's got to be somebody else. Why would God choose me? And then, and then, and then questions like, like, why, why this way? Like, the road ahead is hard. Those eye rolls will become difficult. Those whispers behind the back, my parents doubt the social exclusion will be almost unbearable. My son will be thought of as an illegitimate child. There will be questions throughout his life of who is his father, and I as his mother will bear that brunt. Why this way? And, and yet, she rejoices. She glorifies God. I would suggest that it's because as she rode, as she reflects on what it is that is happening to her and the consequences that will come and the promise that the angel has declared to her, she's come to a recognition of what it is that God's promises are actually about. I think first, Based on her worshipful song, based on this Magnificat, she first set, comes to the conclusion that God's promises are consistent. She, she, she talks about in verse 51 to 53, she says, He has shown strength in his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. This, this can only come from a clear understanding how, of how God has worked in the past. You see, as, as she wrote, as she started to think about, well, why, why me? I'm nothing. I come from nowhere. She would have thought about the people of Israel in slavery, a nothing people who could do nothing for themselves, and God saved them. She would have thought about King David. The man after God's own heart. The great king. The king whose throne would last forever. The king whose son is in her. She would have thought 
Yeah, he wasn't thought of that way either, was he? Like when Samuel came along to David's family, they brought everybody else first. Certainly you couldn't be talking about David, right? Like let's start with the first one and the second one. I mean, these ones look like they act like the king. But God's message to Samuel is, no, 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 no. I don't look at outward appearance. I'm looking at the inward heart. I'm looking for a heart that is like mine. And then they get to David. No, it can't be David. And yet that's who God chooses. David in Psalm 138 verse 6 says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty, the proud, he knows from afar. Pondering what it meant to hold the Messiah and to anticipate the changes that he would make to the world would bring back memories of the teachings of Daniel that her father would have taught her. And she would have remembered Nebuchadnezzar and the dream that he had and the humble servant Daniel who came and interpreted that dream and brought condemnation from God because Nebuchadnezzar looked at his kingdom and thought, look what I have built. Look at my kingdom. Look at the reach of my might. Look at how good I am. Look at what I provide for the world. And God said, I will make you humble. And it didn't take long before Nebuchadnezzar ended up eating grass like that of a cow. And God humbled him. When Mary reflected on that, she would have remembered the words of Nebuchadnezzar at the end of Daniel chapter 4, where he says, Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. See, she would, have, she would have reflected on the acts of God and how he's worked in the world and said, Yeah, you know what? This, this is actually consistent with the way that God works in the world. He exalts the humble. He brings down the proud. He feeds the hungry. He frees the slave. That's, that's, that's how God works. So, so why, why not me? This is, this is consistent with the way that the God works of Israel works. So certainly he would use a humble woman from Nazareth to bring about his ultimate salvation. So this should actually give us great comfort and confidence as we seek God's face. We do not approach a God who is willy-nilly and decides what he wants to do in the moment. He is a God who is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. 
Which means that when we are seeking God in what is happening today, in the circumstances, in the muck, in the mire that we experience today, in the tumult in our hearts and our minds, and trying to figure out what it is that is happening in our world and in our lives, we can be certain that he is consistent. And that when we open this word, we can find his truth and can use that as an anchor in the craziness of our lives. See, Mary could praise God because the answer of why me is I always work that way. I always take the humble So Mary praises because God's promises are consistent. But she praises because God's promises are also right side up. Sometimes we talk about the kingdom of God as being uh, kind of the upside down kingdom. If, if you've been in church for a while, you might have heard that because our experience in the world sometimes is just so opposite to what uh, Scripture talks about, to what God talks about. When we, when we read again uh, Mary's um, reflection in verse 51 to 53, he kind of, he, he, he scatters the proud, he brings the mighty down from their throne. He exalts the humble. And we sometimes call this the, the upside down kingdom, that God works opposite to the kingdom of this world, to the, to the way this world operates. But I, I think that actually robs us of the reality of God as God. And that when he created the world, he created the world in a particular way. With a particular view of human flourishing and what creation and life ought to be. And the fall turned that upside down. And so when God reveals himself, he's actually revealing the right side up kingdom. Not the upside down one. The, the, the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard uh, was a Danish philosopher in uh, the 19th century. He, he wrote a parable about uh, this reality. And, and the way that he talked about it was um, a, a jewelry store that had been running for some time and it sold like the, the gamut of jewelry from like uh, fake jewelry and just stuff you'd give your kids to, to like expensive diamond rings. And one night, two thieves broke into this jewelry store. But instead of stealing the jewelry, what they did is they took the price tags off and they put them on different items. So they would take the $10,000 price tag and put that on a trinket. And took the, the $9 price tag and put that on the $10,000 ring. And then they walked out of the store. And the next day, the store opened and operated as normal. And nobody knew the difference. People bought $10,000 rings for pennies and took home trinkets for their life savings. And he said, 
This is the reality of the world around us. That God has created the world with a value order and we have come in and twisted it all. And we will spend our life savings on trinkets. And value that which is immeasurably more valuable as if it were worthless. Mary understood this. As she started to reflect on how God had worked in her life and how God had worked through history, she was like, yes, this is the way it should be. It's unjust that there would be the proud who oppress and the rich who would take more and the powerful who would enslave. That's, that's just, there's something wrong with that. And when I look at how God works in the world, man, all I can, yeah, yes, that, like, that's the right side up kingdom. That's the way it ought to be. When, when Jesus came onto the scene 30 years later, as he grew, he preached the Sermon on the Mount, one of his famous sermons, and he starts to talk about blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, and these, and these seem like opposite to what the world we live in would say is blessed, is happy, is good. But, but he goes on to talk about things like, you know, you've, you've committed adultery in your heart if you look at a woman with lust-filled intention. So like if, if you just look at somebody and you just have lust in your heart, like you have an intention of lust, like th that's the same as committing adultery. And when we start to think about that, we might be like, yeah, you know what, that's, that's a glimpse of the, of the right side up kingdom. Because all that's doing is it's taking a human being, a, a being made in the image of God and reducing them to their physical attributes and their sexuality. Man, people are more than that, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, you know, you know what? That, that sounds more right side up. He goes on to talk about giving to the needy and not, and not making it a fanfare where you go, oh, look at me, come and gather around. I'm giving all of this money. Do you want to know how much I gave? I fed that person over there and I gave that person this and I did this. No, no, no. He says, when you give, Jesus says, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Do it in humility. And, and isn't there something about that that's just intrinsically, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's good. That's the way it ought to be, that we don't draw attention to ourselves, but we seek the good of others. Yeah, that, that, that sounds like right. When he talks about the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, doesn't that sound good? And like it's like the right side up. 
not negating the value that you have as an image bearer of God, as a unique creation of God, as loved by him and cared by him, but it doesn't elevate you above those around you. Care for those around you as you would care for yourself. Lift them up. See their needs met like you would wish that your needs were met. Oh man, that's, yeah. That sounds right side up. Sometimes we, we find ourselves living in the upside down world of stranger things, don't we? You see, Mary understood that God's promises are right side up. And man, that brings life and joy. Thirdly, though, she recognized that God's promises are certain. In Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 54 and 55, At the end of her psalm here, she says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his his offspring forever. See, in those four days of traveling, she would have remembered the promises of God in Genesis chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, where God called Abraham and said, I will make you a great nation and I will bless the world through you. And she would have remembered the act of God in freeing the Israelites and bringing them to, the, to Mount Sinai and revealing himself to them and promising through Moses, saying that I will bless the world through you. And the angel would have reminded her of the covenant, the promise that God made with David when he put him on the throne and said, and your throne will last forever, and I will bless the world through you. And now, the reality of a baby boy that is in her womb, that she knows, that she is certain, is from God. Oh, the world out there might question, but she is certain that she did not do anything that would have had this child be there. She knows she is pure. She knows this is a miracle. And so in, in her, God's promises are certain. That, that the promises he made with Abraham are coming true with her. Man, what he started back there is going to continue with her. It's so certain that the words that she uses through her poem are as if it's already happened. 
You know, this, this past tense, she says, has. He has done this. He has done this. He has done this. We would talk about this as if, like, you know, you're, you're watching a, like a, a season of sports. So we'll say hockey, for example. And you're looking for who's going to be the MVP of, of the league that year. And there's just one particular person that's just heads and tails above. But we're only, like, two-thirds of the way through the season. You're like, oh, you know what? They have it locked up. Past tense. It's decided. It's over. There isn't, there isn't a question as to whether or not this will come true. That's why Mary can be so joyful. The road ahead is difficult. The sniggers are real. The, the doubt from her parents is real. The questions about her son's legitimacy is real. But she is certain because God's promises are certain. God's promises are sure. Despite the road ahead, her soul rejoices in God and glorifies him for who he is because she is sure that his promises are true. Oh man, that, that should be such encouragement to us as we stand here celebrating Christmas. That God throughout history has promised that he would send someone to do what we could not accomplish to combat the upside-down world that we could not write. We stand on the precipice of Christmas Eve and where God did just that. And that should bring such joy to our hearts and our minds and our lives and our families and our worship. We should be exploding with joy because God did not leave us in that upside down world but made a way for us to be sons and daughters of his and be embraced into his family. We celebrate Christmas because God came to us in our upside down world. And his promise of salvation is certain. It is true. It is good. It brings joy and peace and hope. Mary was inspired by the prophet Habakkuk because he wrestled with God over how it is that his reality, his promises would come true because he looked at the Israelites around him and thought, God, how is it possible that you are allowing such violence, such difficulty, such challenge in the world? And God said, oh, don't worry, I, I have a solution. It's coming, it's coming in the Babylonians. They're gonna bring judgment. 
They're going to come in and they're going to crush Israel because I've warned Israel that that's what would happen if they didn't obey me. And Habakkuk's like, wait, 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 wait. I don't like that solution. That's a terrible solution. The Babylonians are way worse than we are. That would mean such suffering for me. Man, that's like, God, could you do something different? And after he's wrestled with God, after he's really struggled with what it means to follow God and trust his promises. This is, this is what he comes to in Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olives fall, and the field yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, God, you are nowhere to be seen. Your hand is not with your people. I don't feel you in my life. I don't hear you in my prayers. I feel like they hit the ceiling and come down. There is no blessing. I feel no blessing in my life from you. Even then, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Does that sound familiar? Mary at the very beginning, and my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Whatever may come, I have such joy because God's promises are true and certain. They're the right way up and they're consistent throughout history. I can stand in the face of anything in joy because of his promises. And yet there's more. God's promises are personal. Luke chapter 1, 48 and 49. For he has looked on the humble servant or humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. See, Mary understood in this moment that this was not some nationalistic promise, some ethereal reality, but it was personal for her that God came and blessed her. That the God of the universe, the one who had mapped this out from the beginning, who miraculously saved the people of Israel, who parted the seas, who brought the promises of God, who brought miracle after miracle after miracle, did this for her. And his promises are for you and me.
That his promises in his word through his son Christ, the, the, the work that Jesus did is not an academic exercise. It is not a philosophical exercise. It is not national. It's not ethereal. It is personal. It is for you. Oh, I pray this Christmas that you would know the joy of that promise for you. That you may be a nobody from a nowhere town thinking, man, you know what? You don't know the things in my life. You don't know what I've accomplished. You don't know the thoughts in my mind or the actions that I've done. You don't know how terribly I've hurt God or hurt others. And I'm telling you, that there is joy for you this Christmas season because these promises are for you. God came in the form of a baby and humbled himself in a right side up kind of a way to make a way for you to have relationship with him. Please don't pass it by this Christmas season. For those of us, for those of us who call Jesus our Lord, oh man, I pray that you have joy this season. As we remember that the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this season of where we can still our hearts and remember what you have done. Thank you, God, for Jesus. Thank you for the hope and peace and joy we can find in him. Oh, Father, would you, would you just open our eyes to that reality? Would you help us to see you as true and right and good? Father, would we experience the joy of your salvation, Father, and would our spirits magnify you for who you are and what you've done? We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.